0: Moncrief on News Talk. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Now you may not have heard of Monica to Witchfeld, but in Denmark it's a very well-known name. She's one of the heroes of their World War II resistance and was sentenced to death for it. She also grew up in County Fermanagh. Clodagh Finn has been writing about her in today's Examiner. Afternoon, Clodagh. Good afternoon, Sean. So tell us something first about Monica Massey Beresford, as she was originally, something about her her early life.
1: Her early life? Well, it's great to see she's commemorated near her childhood home, which was St. Hubert's, a vast estate in County Fermanagh. And just to give you a flavour, Of what it was like in her childhood. She was born in 1894 in London, but she effectively grew up in Fermanagh and saw herself as an Irish woman or a woman of Fermanagh. And she was the oldest child and the only girl. And according to her brother, Tim Massey-Berriford, she was the undisputed leader and I'm just going to read you one short paragraph of what he says about her because you can get a real insight into her character and I think it's a character that she just didn't change as she grew on. So Tim said of his sister she had all the ideas and saw to it that we carried them out. More often than not these were things strictly forbidden Often dangerous, like bathing on some remote rocky shore or jumping from a particularly high trampoline in the barn. She knew no fear. So there we are. That's a little insight into the early Monica. And that fearlessness, I think, is a thread that carries on right through her life.
0: Yeah. And so when she was growing up, then she moved to London. And was it there she met her husband?
1: Yes, she well she was educated at home. Um, I think there was a couple of bad experiences at local schools where she might have been thrown out. And then she went to France and Germany. So she would have seen a lot of Europe already before she moved to London. And in 1916, she was in London. And that's where she met her husband, who was a Danish aristocrat and diplomat, Jorgen de Wishfeld. And that sounds very uh, idyllic, if you like. But at the time, she was working in a soldier's canteen and two of her brothers were actually fighting in the First World War. And unfortunately, one of them was killed in action, John Clarina, in 1916. So it was her husband then um, inherited another vast estate in an island um, in Denmark called Lolland. And that's when she goes to Denmark. And actually, she really identifies with that country, too. You know, she was very fond of the Danish people and fond of um, Danish culture. And Mm. she spoke Danish, albeit with an accent. Um, But there were financial difficulties. So she had three children. There were financial difficulties. And when the Wall Street crash of 1929 came, they were forced to kind of move to Italy where her mother had moved. Yet, and this is what I find fascinating about her, and it shows kind of how resourceful she was, she still managed to move in, you know, the best circles. She knew uh, Winston Churchill's wife uh, when she was in London. Noel Coward used to take her to the uh, theatre. But also she decided to set up her own costume jewellery business. And this was in the 1930s, you know, when it wasn't, when women really weren't very entrepreneurial. But she sold, um, I love the description, tortoise shell bracelets with inset gold watches. Wouldn't you want one? Sounds lovely. Yeah, enamel necklaces. And they were the dernier cri, which is all the rage, according to Paris decorator and hostess Elsie de Wolfe. And one little piece I want to put in here, which I found fascinating, in 1937, you know, when war, the idea of war was was on the horizon, she was in Cannes. And who did she meet? Only Wallace Simpson, who was the American divorcee Mm -hmm. who caused a constitutional crisis in Britain when she, you know, fell in love with Prince Edward. And she finds herself sitting down beside Wallace at dinner time and Wallace is telling her, I get thousands of letters. She got thousands of letters from people who approved, who disapproved, who threatened of her. So many, she needed her own postman. But Monica was writing to his mother, Alice, and she said, she is common and vulgar beyond words. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's a very interesting insight. Yes. So well, the,
0: the, the war broke out. I think they lived in Italy for a few more years, but eventually uh, returned to Denmark, uh, back to this estate that he he inherited. Who then introduced her to the resistance?
1: Well, it's interesting. I think she thought it out herself first, because the reason she left Italy was she was vocally anti-fascist. And when she moved back to the estate, she actually the everybody used to listen to the BBC So she heard tales of, you know, rationing in England and she heard they were starving in Poland and she heard stories of resistance in Norway. So she said, you know, she said, I don't I want to live in the real world, not meekly to be meekly consuming the fruits of collaboration. And Denmark was neutral and was kind of trying to keep its head below the parapet. But she had uh, a tenant on her estate who was a Danish writer called Hilmar Wolf. And he was the first person, they used to talk about Proust and other great things. She was a very intelligent, interested woman. Um, He was involved in a resistance uh, underground network that published a newspaper called Free Denmark. So the first thing she did in around 1942 was she started to raise funds for this. And eventually she was drawn deeper and deeper into the resistance. And just to to give you an idea, I suppose resistance work, and it's the same in all of the countries during World War II, it involved propaganda was a huge part of it. So too was kind of sabotage, trying to sabotage anything belonging to the occupied forces. By 1943, parachute drops from England became very important and they would send supplies and arms to the resistance and while Monica wasn't actually fighting in the resistance, she allowed her estate to be used for parachute drops,
0: right? And and, and also <laughs> sheltered people there in, in her own she home. Was
1: that? She did. She sheltered Aurea around nineteen forty three. As 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 the uh, Americans had jo- joined the war, there were a lot more Allied airmine kind of falling out of the sky, and uh, she sheltered. She also sheltered. Um, Jewish, Danish, Jewish people. She passed them off as servants in her own house. Um, extremely dangerous.
0: Yeah, I would have thought um, so. And, and through all this, did Jorgen, the husband, was he oblivious to all of this or
1: pretending? He was oblivious, apparently, you know. He was oblivious. Maybe he wanted he turned a blind eye to affairs because one of the things that's casually mentioned in her biography is she had a lover. He turned a blind eye to her lover of of many years, and they used to go on holidays, and he used to go along as well. So uh, the lover, so <laughs> Kurt, Kurt, and he's about five surnames, so I, I won't go into them.
0: That's very you civilized know, altogether, very, I must say. So, civilized, you yeah. know. So her sh- how how we, were involved? Yeah. How her was she? Event- children were involved. Yeah. How was she eventually she was- discovered, um, Clodagh?
1: She was she was caught with many others, about four or five of the network, because, you know, one thing you see, actually, when you're researching people who who were active in the resistance, they develop this kind of sixth sense for danger. Samuel Beckett had it once he was going up the stairs in Paris to warn a fellow member and he got this terrible, overwhelming feeling that something was wrong and he went away and he was right because the Gestapo were waiting in that apartment and likewise, she got this feeling that she'd been very lucky up to so far. You know, she, I've been too lucky. Something's going to happen. And three resistant members were arrested in December 1943. And under torture, they revealed a number of names, including hers. So she was arrested. And then really quite dramatically, she was sentenced to death with three others in May the 13th, 1944.
0: Uh, but that was commuted, the death sentence. It
1: was commuted. There was an outcry, I think, because she was a woman, also perhaps because she was an aristocrat. And apparently the Danish Queen intervened and it was commuted to life in prison. But it's funny, Monica, when she was actually um, sentenced, she there's, there's a very interesting vignette. It says she took out her enameled Tiffany compact and opened it so she could see her son who was sitting behind her. And then she smiled and she said to the three judges who were wearing SS uniforms, anything else, gentlemen. And she was told that she could actually appeal the sentence. And then she asked, can my three fellow resistors, who are all men, appeal? And they said no. And then she said, then it is of no interest to me. So she was willing to take the punishment, meted out to all of them. Yeah. In the event... There was the outcry, and she went to prison, Cottage prison in Germany, and then to Walheim, where again actually her resilience um, comes to the fore. She, you know, she, she tried to rally the morale of the fellow prisoners, um, but she got sick and she she had she got viral pneumonia and died in prison.
0: Yeah. Uh, and that prompts then another little bit of a mystery. Uh, Where where were they told she was buried?
1: Well, she wasn't religious, but before she died, she did ask to see a pastor and a pastor came in and he gave her a blessing. And then he wrote to the family to say she was buried in a churchyard near um, Walheim concentration camp. And this would be a sign of how well respected she was in Denmark the Danes sent a commission to try to repatriate her remains to bring them back to Denmark. And when they went, um, you have to remember too that um, Walheim, when after the war, that became a Russian zone of occupation. So things were very upset. I think the church had been destroyed. I'm not sure exactly what happened to the graveyard. So whether they came to the right spot or not is uncertain. Mm -hmm. In any case, they dug up a grave and they found it was empty. So up until recently, we've believed that her body has, has never been found. But following publication of this article, I have new evidence and new leads that we might be able to identify where she is, in fact. Oh my, so yeah. hope to come back to you with more answers to that mystery so we can, um, you know, find, right. finally find out the final resting Place of this incredible woman who spent so much of her childhood in County Fermanagh and is remembered there now with a blue flag, a blue plaque, which was unveiled by the Ulster History Circle.
0: What a fascinating story. Clodagh Finn is an author and journalist. Clodagh, thank you very much.
1: A pleasure. Thank you, Sean.
0: Moncrief, weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.